Take with me your Bibles in this evening and turn to Genesis in the chapter 12, the book of Genesis in the chapter 12. And once more, we're asking for your patience in these extended readings because we're going to read the four chapters that the Abrahamic covenant is covered in. And so once more, our readings will be a little extended, but nevertheless worthwhile as we continue with our study this evening. So beginning our reading then in Genesis in the chapter 12, we begin at the verse 1. And the Word of God says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sychem, unto the plain of Moreh. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east side of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed going on still toward the south Coming across then to chapter 13, please. Chapter 13, and we're picking up our reading at the verse 14. And the Lord said unto Abram, After that lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it unto thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. Then chapter 15 and the verse 1, chapter 15 and the verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, saying, I go childless in the steward of my house? Is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and no one born in mine house is mine heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, this shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each one against another, but the birds divided he not. 
And when the files came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenesites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaims, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And then come across to chapter 17, and we read there the opening eight verses as we conclude our readings this evening. And when Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thy perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Amen, as we end our reading there at the verse 8. Now, last week we set the scene as aware of our studies in this particular covenant. We saw how that God called Abraham, how He comforted Abraham, and then in the end how He gave a command to Abraham. And all these facts meant that the ground was laid, the time was right, and now God would proceed and reveal His plan and solemnize His commitments to Abraham and to His seed. Now, coming to consider this Abrahamic covenant tonight, we do so employing the four headings that we used the last time in our considerations of the Noahic covenant. And this, I trust, will help you with your notes, but also uh, to help you in recall of the things that we present this evening. And so the first thing that we consider tonight is simply this, the substance of the covenant. The substance of the covenant. What did God covenant to do? Well, for that, we come back to chapter 12, and we begin there in verse 2. And we see that the word of the Lord unto Abram was simply this, I will make of thee a great nation. And that's the first thing that the Lord promises to do as He enters into this covenant with this great patriarch. A great nation then was to come from Abraham. As we look back and see how history has progressed, we note, of course, that this was and is the nation of Israel. 
And that is key to our understanding of this entire covenant. We must understand that this was a covenant made between God and Abraham. And the covenant primarily involved then the emergence of a nation. And so God covenants with Abraham, not as representative of the race of mankind, but rather as the father of the Jewish race, the nation of Israel. Now, as verse 2 continues, we see not only does God covenant to make of thee a great nation, but He only goes on to say, I will bless thee. And so we see that Abraham was to be personally blessed. The call came. The call was to be obeyed. But as God calls Abraham to follow him, to leave all behind, and to be obedient in following the living and the true God, he simultaneously covenants with him to bless him, to prosper him. You may think to yourself, well, that sounds awfully like a bribe to me. But I suggest to you that nothing could be further from the truth. For as God is revealing His plan, His program for Abraham, as He's entering into this covenant with Abraham, I suggest to you that God is anticipating absolute obedience. It's in keeping, is it not, with how God has revealed Himself already in this book. There's no desire, there's no intent of God ever throughout this book of beginnings to prove His existence. It simply says at the very beginning of this book, in the beginning, God. He stated it as a fact. He goes on then in in the times of Moses to simply further that by claiming this, I am that I am. Again, without seeking to prove the all-powerfulness of his character, of his nature, of his might, he simply declared, and he anticipated perfect observance perfect obedience. And so, as we come to this revelation to his servant here, Abraham, I believe that in calling him in the verse 1 to follow him, he did so with full expectation of obedience. And it is therefore in the light of this expectation of obedience that God goes on to reveal all that Abraham will enter into as he follows God and as God's plan is enacted in his life. Now, that always strikes against how you and I think, because we're conditioned in this world to hear mandates, to hear pleas, to hear exhortations, to do this or that, but all along we're also expecting a little carrot to be dangled, a little enticement just to make the deal that little bit sweeter. And before you dismiss that as nonsensical, well, cast your mind back to the day whenever you were a child. Or perhaps you're a parent here of a young child. And have you ever tried the horrible bribe? (laughs) You do this and you'll receive this. That's how we condition children from a young age. That's how we ourselves were conditioned. And then it progresses and the horribles and the jellies aren't good enough, so we move on to the pounds and the fivers. And we say, do this and get this. And then it ends up in the car room or the car showroom or perhaps in the travel agent. And all along, people are offering us something. All along, people are telling us to do something, but they're also sweetening the deal. That's how we work. That's how our minds are conditioned. 
But this is not at all how God works. This is not how God operates. For in His infinite wisdom and knowledge, He declares His existence, He desires our submission and obedience, and He demands our worship and our sacrifice. And at all times, He fully anticipates that to be fulfilled. Running parallel to all of this at all times is, of course, the completeness of His character, His whole nature. Because He's a God who is ever faithful, ever faithful in His blessing upon mankind. There's never a day that He sums up what we have done, how faithful we have been, how obedient we have been, and says, well, because we weren't that obedient today, well, you don't eat just as well tomorrow. You don't know just as much safety. You don't enjoy just as good health. That's not how God operates. He is an ever-faithful God. He is one who every day showers upon us the many blessings of life, despite our rebellion, despite the times whenever we're cold and apathetic, despite the times whenever we do that which is contrary to His revealed will for us, He is ever faithful to you and He's ever faithful to me. He litters the pathway of life with unnumbered blessings and goodness. He is one who remains faithful to His promise. And yes, His promise extends even to that commitment that they that honor Him will be honored of him. Jim Elliot is the one who always springs to my mind as an example of all that God seeks to instill in our hearts and instill in our lives. For whenever the challenge comes, whenever the call comes, we remember Jim Elliot was one who lost his life in a wholehearted attempt to evangelize a tribal people in Ecuador. But somewhere along the journey of life, which resulted in his ultimate death, he caught the secret. Because he penned those words. He said those words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Friend, tonight I remind you that you aren't a fool to believe in God. You aren't a fool to follow God. You aren't a fool to implicitly trust and obey God. But at all times to you is guaranteed as a child of God an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away. And that's reserved in heaven for you. And so as God reveals to us His will for our lives, as He exhorts and commands us to follow in the path that He has chosen for us, as He reveals doors of opportunity to us, as He demands our worship and our sacrifice time after time, let us be faithful to Him in return. Remember what we said last week about not letting Him down? about doing that which pleases Him, bringing glory and honor, not dishonor to His name. May that be evident in our lives. But it's all against the backdrop of the one who never fails us. Verse 2 continues then, and he says, I'll make your name great. This promise we can relate to today because it's 
evident right up to this generation. All around the world, Abraham's name is recognized. It's fair to say that his name is respected, indeed revered, by millions across the world. Christians, Catholics, Jews, even Muslims, revere and respect the name of Abraham. And then verse 2 ends with this, another promise. He would be a blessing to others. Verse 3, a promise then of blessing is extended to those who bless Abraham. A warning of cursing to those who mistreat him. Then at the end of verse 3, here in the chapter 12, we see how God covenants to bless all the nations of the world through the seed of Abraham. Now, despite the vast number of promises we've already considered and commitments that we've already seen given, we haven't finished yet. So, come across to chapter 15 and we see more of what God covenants to do. Chapter 15 and the verse 1 through 4, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold to me, thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in mine house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And here we see the commitment of God, the promise of God, that Abram, Abraham would receive an heir. A son was promised. Now, in chapter 17, in the verses 16 through 21, we see that God's intention for this son, the realization of this son, was according to God's plan to come from his marriage to Sarah. It says in the verse 16, I will bless her, that's Sarah, and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abram fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is an hundred years old, and shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? And Abraham said unto God, O that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. And so quite clearly here, this promise of an heir, according to God's plan, would be the product of his marriage to Sarah. I emphasize that tonight, but we can't dwell on it tonight. I'm trying to be in my best behavior, stick to the framework and make it through the covenant tonight. And so hold that at the forefront of your mind because we will come back to that. The fact that God's intent was always for this heir to come through the marriage relationship he shared with Sarah. Now in verse 16 of chapter 17, we see that God's promise did not stop with an heir. Because there in the verse 16 it says, I will bless thee and give thee a son of her, yea, I will bless her. She will be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Now come back to chapter 15 and read with me again the verse 5. 
So this, remember, we're elaborating and developing this promise that God is giving to him here of an heir, a son, a son to call his own from the marriage that he shared and enjoyed with Sarah. But read with me in verse 5. He brought him forth abroad. Look now toward the heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. And so God's commitment to Abraham, understand here that God's commitment extends beyond one son. Not only would he be the father of Aner, Isaac, but ultimately in God's plan, he was to be the father of many nations. Specifically, the nation of Israel. We've said a lot already. We've laid out the commitments that God has given this far, and it's been a lot of information, but we've saved the most significant to the last. Come back to chapter 12 and read in verse 1. We see here the first mention of the commitment that God gives to provide a land. Now, Abraham is, or the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. Read in the verse 7 of the same chapter. The Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. Now, come into chapter 13 and read in the verse 14 of that chapter. The Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. And then come into the verse 17 and says, arise, walk through the land and the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then come across to chapter 15. We're laboring the point, but it's well worth laboring. And read with me in the verse 18. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Rephraims, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. Then for one final reference, read in verse 8 of the chapter 17, where the Lord says, And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. There, in these verses, quite clearly, God covenants a land to Abram and to his seed, specifically the nation of Israel. Now, once again, the temptation is to park there for just a little bit. But if I want my Haribo after the meeting, I'm going to have to behave and keep on going. So I stick to the framework. Brings us to the end, then, of the substance of the covenant. And make no mistake about it, as we've read and considered these things, we see how vast this covenant is, how many commitments the Lord is making, and how much of an impact these, the fulfilling of these commitments will have upon Abram, upon his entire seed, upon, indeed, history. We see personal promises made. We see national promises made. We see universal promises made. 
The sheer breadth and scope of this covenant testify to its importance to God and in the plan of God. Don't underestimate that. I believe it's of of great significance. Why? Because in the early chapters of Genesis, and specifically in this portion of Scripture, chapters 12 through 17, we see God's reversal of all the catastrophe and all the calamity that's been brought in by the fall. All that has been exacerbated by the ever-increasing sin nature that's manifested in man. Remember, in Noah's day, the thoughts and the intents of man's heart was only evil continually. In the days of Babel, the desire of man was to make a name for himself, to elevate himself above all else. And so in Noah's day, God judged the world by a flood. In the time of Babel, he separated the nations and confused the speech. One resulted in a covenant to preserve the world. Now, here we see God entering into a covenant to a people, a place, and the bringing forth of a divine protector, a Savior. And this was God's way, I suggest to you, of simply saying in these early chapters of Genesis, I'm in control. It's all going according to plan. The plan is unfolding. The future is bright. The end is secure. God is reminding us. He's reminding Abraham. He's reminding Abraham's seed, that nation of Israel. It's all under my control. So we see the substance of the covenant, but we see also the stipulations of the covenant. Remember, that was our second point. In doing so, we're asking ourselves, is there any conditions that God ties man to in the fulfilling of this? Now, to answer this point, I could make a blanket statement and simply move on. But the truth is that this very point has been much disputed for a very long period of time. There are those who say that despite the fact that no conditions are attached to this covenant in any of the passages of Scripture that we refer to tonight, it is, however, without doubt that conditions are involved. The basis for this for many is due to other covenantal arrangements they identify in the Word of God, which were then altered by God because of disobedience. Some might point to the removal of the perpetual priesthood from the house of Aaron due to, of course, the sins of Eli and his sons. But to use that as an example of proof as to how God alters a covenantal arrangement doesn't truly fit into this covenantal arrangement because I believe this covenant to be an unconditional covenant. But the covenant for a perpetual priesthood comes at a later date in the days of the Mosaic Covenant, which we all agree is conditional. So it's nothing, I believe, to do with what God enters into here with Abraham. It cannot be used as proof that God adds on conditions as Scripture progresses as time unfolds. For some others, well, they say that to stick too rigidly to the expectation of fulfillment, especially fulfillment to be realized amongst the physical seed, is an incorrect way of interpreting Scripture in this instance. 
Simply what I'm saying is that for some to say, for some they say that if you and I expect Israel nationally to see these things fulfilled, well, that's slightly unrealistic. Because remember, Israel have been, as evidence is produced, a plenty from the Word of God, and as we can see for, for with our very own eyes and again from our own understanding of the nation today, they've been a people who have disobeyed God, they've been a nation who have wandered from God, and as we look at them today, they have no time for the living and the true God. And so, for some, it's better if we see the fulfillment of all that God covenants here with Abraham in a spiritual sense, to a spiritual seed of which you and I are part of here today in 2021. Now, for me, I can't see that. I can't agree with that. I can't agree with it practically, and I can't agree with it biblically. Let me address the biblical response first. Every time I read a portion of Scripture, I try to insert myself into that portion of Scripture. Every time I come to something that stretches my mind, and let me tell you, that's more often than not, you can't get much stretching out of a garden pea, and so my brain doesn't stretch much farther than that. And so very often I have to insert myself in the Scripture to gain a little bit better of an understanding. But I try to place myself in their shoes and I ask myself questions, and in this scenario, I'd be saying to myself, well, how was Abraham expecting this to be fulfilled? As God was speaking with Abraham, as these promises were made, how is he understanding God to fulfill these promises in his life and his experience? How, after God finishing speaking to him, and he reflects on it a while, how is his understanding of how it's all going to come to pass? So when we apply that line of thinking and to this exact scenario here, how does Abraham anticipate fulfillment? Is it to a literal seed or is it to a spiritual seed? Now again, I could give you my opinion, but it's not worth much more than a postage stamp, despite the fact that stamps are increasing every week, it seems. Still not of much value or much worth, but I do believe God answers this question for us. And so let's come to consider what God says. Come to chapter 17. Read with me in the verse 7. Remember, we're asking ourselves this question. As Abraham heard this from God, how was Abraham expecting this to be fulfilled? Read with me in the verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee, Every man-child among you shall be circumcised. Come down to verse 19. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I, will, I have blessed him. 
and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. Now, I know that here in Northern Ireland, we can fall out about pretty much anything. And we can keep up disagreements for years. I don't know if the disagreement has ever been settled as to whether or not it's cream paint or magnolia paint. <laughs> or if, if you're talking to my mom, dark cream and light cream. <laughs> Hope she's not listening tonight, but nevertheless, that, rumble, that argument, that debate has rumbled on. We can argue about anything, but surely as we read these verses together tonight, surely as we behold these inspired words of God we can all agree that Abraham expected a real baby boy who would go on to have real baby boys. And surely we see also that it was real-life men and real-life baby boys who would be circumcised. And so his expectation, as God finished speaking, was that the promises made would be fulfilled to those who shared his name to those who had his blood flowing through their veins. Now, practically, I answer it like this. I'm your brother in Christ, aren't I? Well, if Aunt Penelope dies and she leaves behind a great fortune that's in a mattress buried somewhere, and I turn up at the will reading of Aunt Penelope, and I tell you that as her last relative you are slightly amiss in your expectation because I'm as much your brother as anybody else, so I have as much claim to that inheritance as you do. Would you stand for it? Would you accept that? You wouldn't be best pleased, would you? Righteous wrath and indignation would take over. Rightly so. But how can we then apply that interpretation to this commitment of God? How can we take that which we understand in the literal world to be a literal promise to a physical seed, but yet when we come to the Word of God, we want to apply a different mode of interpretation? And to so to say that the condition was that God would only fulfill His commitments to those who walked right before Him as Abraham did, or to those who unwaveringly placed their confidence and trust in Him as Abraham did, is not, in my view, in keeping with the theme of this covenant, nor indeed the desires of God in making this covenant. And so, it's my view that this covenant is unconditional in nature. It remains unconditional. And it will see a total and literal fulfillment. Now, this might be the part where you sit back and say, prove it. I'll give it my best shot. These scriptures all testify to God placing no conditions upon the covenant he's making here with Abraham. If you believe that covenants were implied or indeed added then I suggest to you that you stand apart from the Apostle Paul. For in Galatians chapter 3, he records these words. In verse 13, he says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, 
that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made, he said not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before God and Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, what's Paul saying here? Simply saying this, he testifies to the fact that this promise was given to God, or to Abraham by God as a promise. The coming of the law didn't change it in any way. It didn't disannul it in any way. Nothing has changed about it. It's exactly the same way that God gave it to Abraham. I also believe it's unconditional because despite all that has happened in the many years that have passed, God terms it an everlasting covenant. Twice, in fact. Genesis 17, the verse 7 and the verse 19. And so, yes, its fulfillment in full has undoubtedly been delayed, but yet the term applies. God has committed to these things and the fulfilling of these things for as long as time remains. Another two reasons I believe that it's unconditional is simply this. God reiterates the covenant in Genesis chapter 26 and in Genesis chapter 28. We don't have time to turn to them tonight, but nevertheless, both times he reiterates exactly the same thing to Isaac and to Jacob with exactly the same conditions attached. None. And so I believe that God unconditionally obligates Himself to fulfill all His promises, both to Abraham and I submit to you also His physical seed. And so we come thirdly to the sign of the covenant. The sign of the covenant. Now this is a term where where we're asking ourselves, how was the covenant formalized? And this covenant was formalized by sacrifice. And so, God, days before the Levitical law ever came into existence, He once more lays down a model for what is acceptable sacrifice. And just as we saw in the days of Noah, so too we see here that that acceptable sacrifice, well, it involves the killing and the shedding of blood of clean or pure animals. That's given to us in Genesis 15 and the verses 9 and 10. And he said, Take me an heifer of three years old, a she-goat of three years old, a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each one, one against another, but the birds divided he not. And so Abraham here was to take these animals, these clean animals, he was to slay them, he was to divide them, and he was to lay them on the ground in the customary manner, all in preparation for the ceremony, the covenant being formalized. And so this little walkway would be created between the half carcass on this side and the half carcass on this side. And then, as tradition would have it, the two parties would make their way through that walkway, thereby signifying a covenant had been entered into. Now, Abraham did all of that. And what happened? Well, in verse 12, it tells us, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. 
God tarries. That's what we understand, and He tarries all day. God doesn't turn up for this formalizing ceremony. All day, Abraham had maintained a watch. All day, he sits in guards and views the evidence of his obedience to God. And all day, he ensures the purity of all that he has done. He shoes away the birds as they would come down and feast upon these carcasses. All day, he's expecting God to come. And what happens? Nothing. God tarries. Then in verse 17, it tells us, it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. And the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Here we see God turns up and the formalizing ceremony is entered into. But notice there, that it's only God who passes through. It's only God who is obligated to anything in this covenant. And so he's fulfilling here the words of the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 6 and the verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. The covenant was sealed. It's never been taken back. But yet, it's never been also fully fulfilled. And so I suggest to you the best is yet to come. Point number four, the solace from the covenant. The solace from the covenant. How does this covenant relate to me? Is there any comfort I can take from this truth that we've been looking at this evening? Undoubtedly, we all knew great comfort, I believe, last week as we surveyed the context of the covenant. But how about this week and the actual events of the covenant? Well, absolutely, there is comfort for us to be found, as always, in the Word of God. We remain with our minds focused upon this formalizing of the covenant. We've already noted that Abraham obeyed God. He got these animals and he slew them and he prepared that ceremony and for all that was expected in that ceremony. But God tarried. In that moment, Abraham, I believe, was being tested. And I believe it to be true to this very day that God tests His children. Perhaps that's where you find yourself tonight. You're at what you believe to be a defining moment of your life. But God is silent. You've done all that you can do. You've been faithful in your walk, faithful in your marriage, faithful in raising your children, faithful in your service for Him. But right here, right now, when perhaps you would say you need Him the most, He's silent. And I would say to you that if you're waiting on God, just as we see Abraham waiting on God here, wait on. God will come. His word tells us that though it tarry, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. But notice how God came to Abram. It tells us that his presence in the verse 17 of chapter 15 was manifested in a smoking furnace and a burning lamp. We know that this is the presence of God. Why? Because of that word, behold. Especially in patriarchal scriptures, the word behold always denotes the presence of the divine. Tonight we don't have too much time to go into all that 
is meant by the smoking furnace and the burning lamp, nor indeed to share the varied opinion on what these two symbolize. For a moment, can I focus your mind on the burning lamp? The burning lamp that emits a bright light, something that in Old Testament times testified of the never-failing presence of God. And here in verse 17, we're reminded that this burning lamp was evident in a smoking furnace. In verse 12, we were reminded that a horror of great darkness fell upon Abram. And this great darkness which enveloped Abraham at this point, this smoking furnace, speak to me of the trials and the troubles of life. And perhaps there's one who would say, that's me. I'm enveloped on every side by darkness. On every side there's trouble. On every side there's despair. The horror of great darkness has settled on my soul. And oh, that I could identify my God in it all. Oh, that in the midst of this trial, this suffering, I could know His presence. Friend, I believe we see quite clearly here in this verse that God is there. He's always there. And He's calling you, believer, to exhibit the faith of Abraham, to trust in fallible wisdom, to trust in mutable love, to trust in errant judgment, and above all, to trust inspired truth. Never leaves us nor forsakes us. And here in His holy word, He reveals to us His Son, the one who passed the horror of great darkness like none other could compare in our lives. He knew the whole might of hell arrayed and used against him. But yet our Savior was ultimately victorious. He it is who encourages you today, don't lose hope in the darkness, don't lose faith in the furnace, don't give up in the trial. Because just as the hymn writer reminds us, God speaks to you tonight and He says, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from His hand. You are His. He is thine here in the power of Christ. Not your own power. And not some false power that emits from you whenever you hear a good sermon or a good encouraging word or you receive a text from a brother or sister. No, stand in the power of the risen Christ. And know that he leads from victory to victory. Can I remind you that this all began with fear not? Fear remains to be the arch enemy of faith. And if fear is allowed to prevail, then fear will always kill faith. But tonight... I believe the all-powerful God of heaven and earth says, fear not. Claim my promises. Remind yourself I'm always there. And stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. My time's up tonight, but we still aren't finished but we're long past the introduction, so you don't have to worry about that. We're going to come to consider how Abraham would give Frank Sinatra a good run for his money whenever he would sing, I tried to do it my way. 
We're going to come to consider the years that passed in the making of this covenant, the foresight that was granted in the covenant. And then we're going to come to consider the token of the covenant, that being the rite of circumcision. And much more. But that's all for next week. You'll be glad to know. Now, hopefully tonight you'll agree I've done enough to earn my Haribo. <laughs> hopefully the boss is still watching at home, and whenever I go home there, I'll be on the kitchen table. <laughs> but as we go from here, let us always remember, our God is a covenant-keeping God. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. One verse, so if as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long 